Today's episode focuses on German language learning and teaching. Highlights include learning German, fluency, cultural competency, confidence, and accents, support for students with learning disabilities, raising a bilingual child, childcare and parental leave in Germany versus the US, and this week's travel suggestion is visiting Iserlohn and attending a hockey game. My name is Hanni Geist. Welcome to Coffee Connections. Today's Coffee Connection is my dear friend Sarah Lee, who's a senior lecturer of German in the School of International Letters and Cultures at Arizona State University. Have a listen. My name is Sarah Lee. I'm a senior lecturer of German in the School of International Letters and Cultures at Arizona State University. Originally, I was born in a small town called Iserlohn in Germany, and Iserlohn is located about 30 kilometers south of Dortmund. And Iserlohn is kind of like in the Midwestern part, close to the Ruhrgebiet and the Sauerland area. What was your path in coming to the U.S., specifically Arizona? I have visited the U.S. a few times. The very first time I came to the U.S. was at a student exchange when I was 17, when I was still in high school. Then after I finished my first master's degree in Germany, I went to Michigan State and I got my master's degree there from Michigan State. That was in the early 2000s. After that, I went back to Germany and I met my husband who is British and he was at that time already working here in Arizona. And then when we realized that we want to have a life together, I gave up my life in Germany to move to Arizona to be with my husband and to start our family. And you actually, already were a teacher in Germany, correct? Yes. So my first master's was in teaching K to 12, but I was at that time teaching as a dyslexia therapist in Germany. There are two things that I want to touch on. The first one is becoming a teacher is a little bit different from what it is here. Can you just briefly talk about the process in how you become a teacher in Germany? So starting, I don't know how many of the listeners know that, that in Germany, there's actually different kind of schools from fifth grade till 12th or 13th grade. So you have to be in the highest school in the school system to be able to even go to university. And then when you are um, at university, you have to start taking pedagogy classes. And then you can choose, depending on which ages you teach, you can choose two or three other subject classes that you want to teach. And then you study at the university for about three years, three to four years. That's the first theoretical part of your education. And then For another two years, you go actually into a school where four days a week you're teaching in the school and it's kind of team teaching with an experienced teacher. And then the fifth day you are going kind of like to a theoretical, practical kind of school where you t talk about lesson plans, objectives and so on. And then after those two years, you have another major exam that gives you the certificate as being a fully certified teacher. So I went through the whole system and I was teaching at the elementary level as well as the secondary level. It's called the Realschule. So it's kind of a school that's, it's kind of the middle school where you can't go to university afterwards, but most of the students from this school are going to a, a vocational training afterwards. So what's the, like the difference in the education systems from your perspective now? I know that's a big, that's a big topic, but just like something that comes to mind right away, um, maybe similarities, but also differences. 
where to start. <laughs> I think the biggest difference for me is that school in the US is way more a part of life, seeing their responsibility for social emotional learning, academic learning. You have your teams, your hobbies, that you are on the basketball team and so on and so forth. And in Germany, that is way more separated from each other. So when I was still going to school in Germany, it was, I want to say at least 70 to 80%, it was only academics. And if you had a hobby, it was outside of school, it was after school. The elementary schools, for example, were only two or three hours a day, and you were always home for lunch. And that was it. When I was in my last year of school, of high school, I went to school fewer hours than my own child here in the U.S. did at, in kindergarten. So the school has a completely different role over here in the U.S. as being there for social emotional needs and hobbies. And the teachers are, it, it's, it's so much more that the schools do here than they do in Germany, although that changes now too, that there is more in Germany. It's kind of like the after-school care. You can get care up to four people. PM, approximately, sometimes even 5 p.m. So I think the, the purpose of schooling is very different from here to Germany. And now let's talk about teaching German and learning German. It's very common to see online that people say, oh, learning German is so hard and it's difficult. What do you say to those individuals? I assume you have some students who feel that way. First of all, learning a language is always a challenge, right? Mm -hmm. And it's a challenge not so much because it's so hard, but because the expectation, that is something that I haven't figured out yet after all these years of teaching, the expectation of learning a language is perfectionism. And I think that all people, I speak so often to students who are saying, I want to be fluent in the language. Yeah, what does that ask, mean? Exactly. <laughs> I ask, what does fluency mean? After, give me one hour of your time and I can make you fluent in introducing yourself and saying your name. And, you know, I can do that in pretty much any language. But where does fluency start, actually? Like the fluency they talk about and that they say, I don't want to make mistakes. And then I point out that even in their native tongue, they all make mistakes constantly. They're just not aware of it and they don't care because they have another confidence. So what they always talk about is really the confidence and gaining confidence. And there are languages where they feel it's easier to gain confidence and languages where it's more challenging to acquire confidence. So what I want to tell students is apart from learning German, although of course German is the best language, but you know, that just, <laughs> of course, aside from that, of course, we, you know, we're not... <laughs> I mean, look at us. We're not biased <laughs> at all. No, not at all. <laughs> But the point is, I would always tell anyone, learn a language that you can apply afterwards, because it doesn't make any sense to learn any skill if you can't apply the skill afterwards. And that is apart from languages or anything else. And that's how I would personally choose the language of saying, if you are interested in German engineering, in sustainability, in Europe, in, you know, being an economic leader in Europe, in politics in all of those areas, Germany is extremely strong. And if you see yourself being there in your future, then take that goal and then see language learning as a part of reaching that goal of being successful in your future. Yeah, and I would, I would even add that it's not just see yourself in Europe or specifically Germany, but even here, there are a number of German companies. And even though you may not end up in a German company, I think to have that intercultural competence and the additional language will help you in any, any kind of job, I would say. 
And I 100% agree. And I think what's so very important is, and that has changed, luckily, the understanding that it's not about the language and more and more about the culture. If I see my husband, for example, who's an engineer, and when he's working, it's so often that he says, I've been working with people from around the world, and it's so interesting to see how culturally they react differently to writing emails or shaking hands or being more pushy or less pushy or more friendly and all these things. So this cultural understanding and global understanding of differences makes such a difference in pretty much any job nowadays. You, you mentioned dyslexia, and I know that's something you've been researching also over the past years. So why don't we start just asking what is dyslexia and what is the research that you've been doing? So like I mentioned earlier, I started really when I went to Michigan State when I got my first master's degree and I was focusing on linguistics and the linguistic differences in dyslexia for English native speakers and German native speakers and how dyslexia develops differently. So I wrote my master's thesis about the linguistic differences of dyslexia in those two languages. When I went back to Germany, I was working for several years as a dyslexia therapist. And so defining dyslexia is extremely difficult because it's not this one thing. It's not like a broken leg where you can say you can see it, you can tell that's what it is. Dyslexia very, very, very broadly is a clear, significant difference between your intellectual and academic abilities in comparison to your writing and reading abilities. That's very broad. So it means that you have the ability to achieve more, but you are underachieving and you don't have the ability to develop according to your age and according to your abilities. So how do you test that? So how do you, how, yeah, how do you, if you teach a class, when do you suspect that someone is smart, but is dealing with dyslexia and that's why that student is potentially not successful in a quote unquote normal class setting? So I want to answer that twofold. Ideally, what an ideal, a perfect dyslexia test would be like is to test the phonetic abilities of the person. So is the person able to differentiate between phonemes, so between sounds? So to give you an example, whether I say b or p or g and k. Am I able to hear those differences? And because if I cannot differentiate the sounds, I may not be able to write the letters that correspond with those sounds, right? That would be an important test. The other test would be what your abilities are, like an IQ test. Although I always want to say IQ tests are also difficult because often dyslexia appears often with children and adults who have ADHD. So the question is, are you really going to get a good result and a realistic result? Or if is there's something else that could influence the person's ability. And that is the most difficult thing about dyslexia that you can, or most often you cannot isolate dyslexia from everything else. So you have to see the person as a whole. So there is the ideal situation of dyslexia testing, and then there is the reality of the classroom. And that is your question that you asked. The reality of the classroom is there are typical mistakes that a language learner makes when learning a language. To give you a simple example, in German, we have the gender, der, die, and das, so the, the three different forms of the. If someone, if a learner is confusing which one to take, that is a very expected error and mistake up to the very high levels. However, if there is, for example, a spelling mistake that is very unusual, so for example, if you want to, let's uh, take a word that a lot of even non-German speakers know, like saying hallo 
which is hello, which is spelled H-A-L-L-O, and the person would spell it H-E-L, for example. So something very out of the ordinary of typical mistakes. That would be a point where I would say, how come that this person makes this mistake? So really an error analysis and determining if the errors that the person is making are typical for language learning or are atypical, and then going deeper and finding out why it is atypical would be my first step in the classroom. So how would you support a student with dyslexia and, and not, not only dyslexia, but if you have a classroom of 20 students, you mm -hmm. potentially have 20 different learning types mm -hmm. and of course, 20 different personalities. And I guess that's, that's part of the question, how to really help every student in the classroom to be successful. But what is your strategy? That's such an amazing question because I think it's so important for everyone who's listening. Please thank your own teachers and your children's teachers and all the teachers that you know for the work they do because that's the most underappreciated aspect of what teachers can do, that they can deal with heterogeneity, that they can do the individual help that the student needs and not treating them all the same. That being said, for dyslexia or learning disabilities in general, what I do in the classroom is twofold. On the one hand, I'm trying to help them overcome the struggles that they have with the content. So for example, I would help them learning to differentiate the sounds to be able to hear the difference and therefore being able to also write the difference. That's the one thing working. How would you do that? There are different ways. So for example, in German, what I do a lot is there is a really amazing website out there that is visualizing how you're pronouncing different things. So telling the learner, look where you're Where, you, where the tongue of your lip is right now when you pronounce a certain word or how does it sound or how does it feel? Is there a vibration in your mouth or not and where? And so really finding other ways because they can't really hear it or they, that's not true. They can hear it. It's not a problem with hearing. It's a problem with the differentiation of the sound. And so learning that through other means, so feeling and visualizing and so on and so forth. So that would be a way to work one-on-one -on -one with the student to overcome the problems of dyslexia. The other way, and that is way more important because it's way more realistic that people can do is, is to make life in the classroom easier for the student. So for example, instead of when you have an assessment, instead of just giving them a written activity of saying, for example, do this and this and this and this, and they have trouble with reading, it's so much easier if the teacher is just reading it out aloud once, because that then you don't just have to trust your own reading abilities, but you actually can hear it and you've heard it. And then that already makes it a lot easier instead of saying, please write that down. And that happens a lot. Teachers are speaking and they're writing at the same time for a dyslexic person. Just copying something from the whiteboard is almost it's impossible in itself, but then also paying attention to the teacher speaking is absolutely impossible. So for example, allowing a student to just take pictures with a phone or an iPad or whichever, so they have the picture and they don't have to write at the same time makes a huge difference. And the third thing that I think is extremely important and I actually have a whole list of ways of how a teacher can support a student in the foreign language classroom. So whoever 
of your listeners who's interested, I'm very, very happy to pass that on to have some hands-on ideas of how to support the learner. The third really important thing is that you, as a teacher, you focus on your objectives. So if your objective is, for example, vocabulary and making sure that the person, that the learner knows the meaning of a certain word, then the spelling does not matter. So it doesn't matter how wrong I spell the word. If I can see that the student understands the or knows the meaning of the word, then that student can get 100%. And so focusing or changing the understanding of what correct means to I've reached my objective instead of I've done everything correct. I think that's a super important step for to avoid frustration in the classroom and to be fair towards learners with disabilities. How do you actually manage that if you have 20 students in the classroom to really pay attention to each mm-hmm. of the students' learning progress and learning styles? That's uh, absolutely. That's I will never ever achieve to to do that for everyone all the time. I wish I could do that. Supporting the dyslexic or a dis- learner with a disability in the classroom, every little bit helps. So everything that I do is going to reflect on my students. And luckily in my situation, I have a lot of different ways of helping them. So for example, we have the Disability Resource Center and the students can go there and can say, I'm struggling with this. I need this and this help. So that means I already get before the semester, Mm -hmm. I get a list of students who need help. And although I don't see a diagnosis and I shouldn't see a diagnosis, I already get help of how I can support them in the classroom. The very first day of class, I always point out if anyone needs any specific support, help and so on, they should reach out to me. Teaching is constant observation. When I'm teaching, I'm constantly observing what the students are doing, if they're reaching their objectives and where they're struggling. And just by watching them and observing them, I can see who may need help or not. And then I can reach out to them after after class. And then honestly, once something is in place, something like you can take pictures with your phone, you don't have to write it down, then that's set for the semester. And I don't really have to pay attention to it anymore, right? Or when I'm grading, I'm always grading that I'm saying I'm grading by objectives and not by 100% corrective, you know, correctness. That is something that is just, I, I don't think I could do it any differently anymore because I'm actually doing that for all students because I think it's just, it's really important for all students to get that and not just for learners with disabilities. So I actually remembered now what I wanted to ask <laughs> earlier. What do you think about accents? That's my, that's my most, that's my favorite question or the favorite, oh, you don't have an accent. I was like, what does that even mean? (laughs) Can I please skip this one? Because I have a professional opinion about it. And then I have my personal opinion. I'd like to to know both. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, so my professional, my professional statement about this is that accents are such a non-important part of language acquisition and of language ability, because what's really important about languages is the communication and the ability to communicate and to get your point across. However, and this is the big problem, this is the ideal and the perfect scenario, the reality is that And I'm not an exception there, absolutely not, that I can tell that I see people differently depending on how strong their accent is, that I immediately, without wanting to do it, because I should know better, that I judge and that I say, wow, this person has only been here for two years and they barely have an accent, or wow, this person lived here for 25 years, how can you still have such a strong accent? Or thinking, would I 
and this is the linguist in me and this is the nerd in me that I'm thinking, am I taking this person statement as serious or the same way that I would if this person spoke either perfect English or different? Like to, to, to give you another example, my husband is British and he says he's actively keeping because he loves it, but also actively keeping his British accent because it gives him such an advantage because the British accent is seen as so special. Sophisticated. And sophisticated. Mm -hmm. So right now, I could quite easily just switch <laughs> into the British English and sound so much more sophisticated. Well, I remember, maybe... I remember when I met you, when was that, nine years ago? You had a very, I, th I thought you were British. So let's let's please redo this. And I may sound a lot more sophisticated. But see, that's exactly the point. When I'm over there, I sound a lot more British. When I speak Amer with Americans, I sound a lot more American. And I I can change it if I want to, but it's it takes a lot of energy to do that. And still, I can tell how people act differently depending on how strong my accent is. Or if you want, I can really also speak like with a real German accent now. This would be fun, wouldn't it? Yes. I, the funny thing though is I cannot make, I cannot make grammatical mistakes that mm. easily. I can switch my accent, but I cannot switch my language proficiency. And mm. I think that is, that is so fascinating. Just thinking about that. Why can I switch an accent, but I can't, cannot switch my, my proficiency? One thing that I definitely wanted to ask you is, you mentioned that your husband is British, you're mm -hmm. German originally, mm -hmm. you're living in the United States, mm -hmm. and you, as a German teacher, but um, this, not all German teachers do that, but your daughter speaks both mm -hmm. German and English, and I assume other languages too, because they teach other languages now in the classroom, but... What is your advice or just your experience in general, basically raising your daughter bilingual because a hundred years ago, speaking another language wasn't desirable, so people didn't do it. And I think right now the perception is much different that it, that it is really an advantage, but it's not just enough to speak it. There are so many other components. And also mm -hmm. if you are the only person speaking German, but then everyone around you is not, it's not just enough to to speak German, but to really also navigate some maybe uncomfortable situations where you are the only one speaking German, whereas everyone around you speaks English. So I know that's like 10 years of experience for you. Um, what's your experience in a nutshell? So in a nutshell, first of all, I went into this whole bilingual parenting thing thinking that it's going to be an automatic process that if I just speak German to my daughter, she's going to be bilingual. That's BS. That expectation, throw it away right away. When you're a parent, when you're expecting, when you want to have children, it's just, it's not easy. I know all of the theory and I got so frustrated so much because I was too worried at the beginning. She only spoke German. I was really worried for her to go into kindergarten and not being able to speak enough English, although she was in daycare. And for a year, the people at the daycare couldn't understand her because she only spoke German because that was her language that she preferred going to. And then there was a time when she didn't want to speak German anymore because she spoke English with her friends all the time. And so she didn't want to do that anymore. So whoever is saying, whoever is thinking that 
when you're bilingual, you just develop both languages very nicely parallel. They both at the same proficiency. No, they are not completely not. There are times where one is stronger, the other is stronger, where you doubt yourself, where you read all the theory and it's just, and it's just, it doesn't work that way. So first of all that, second of all, trust your gut. Absolutely. Because it will work out and it will, if, if, and again, we're going back to expectations. The ex- if the expectation is that you expose your child to different languages, that your child knows a few words, that most of the time the kids understand the second language but don't feel comfortable speaking it, that's still so much better than okay. not trying. Mm-hmm. It's so much better when you, I, and I won't go into more detail here, but look at the brain development of multi or bi- bilingual and multilingual children. There's so many huge advantages when it comes to brain development, even if you just expose the kids to the languages, they don't need to speak them, but you just expose them to it. So whenever you get the chance, even if you're not a native speaker of the language, introduce it and speak it whenever you can, even just watch some movies or have some books laying around. Any exposure is better than no exposure. That's number one. Number two, the reality of the situation is, first of all, I think the the cultural aspect is so much more important. I think the huge advantage that our child has being bilingual is that she's bicultural or tricultural. Yeah, I just wanted to say tricultural. <laughs> I always, she's bilingual, but tricultural, that she understands that there's not, not a normal, that's a, this is how we do it in Germany, and this is how we do it in America, and this is how we do it in England, and not, this is how it is being done. And so this understanding, I think, is absolutely fundamental. The third thing is a story I love to I love to share because it makes me mad still after all these years. It happens to me. So we live in Arizona. So there's a lot of Hispanic people around here. And you hear parents speak a lot uh, Spanish with their children. And when I go shopping or when we're at the zoo or wherever and I speak German with my daughter, it happens at least once a week that people come to me and they say, is your daughter speaking German? That is so amazing. How good for her. And I have done it a few times. I'm doing it less and less because I'm honestly a little bit tired that I say, really, do you tell every Hispanic mom that it's amazing that she's speaking Spanish with their child. And you would not believe how often people told me, well, that's different. And I'm saying, no, it's not. It's actually my daughter is at a disadvantage because she can't do anything with her German in Arizona. If she spoke Spanish, it would be a huge advantage for her. And so this societal problem of a, I don't know if that's even a word, but a positive discrimination in a way. And that's, I, I, I think that's my biggest challenge when it comes but that's a very ethical and societal problem that I it bothers me a lot that being bilingual isn't the same as being bilingual Mm -hmm. and that we are seen as you know as better people because our child speaks a European language and Spanish is a European language so that's actually really funny but not funny. So my next question usually I ask what you would like Americans to know about Germans that's not portrayed in the media or in movies and I mean for you specifically I mean you do that all the time as a German teacher but if if there are maybe three things that you kind of bring up in your classroom regularly or that you wish Americans knew what would that be? Number one there isn't the German as there isn't the American and as there isn't the it's Blank. the the human, it's mm-hmm. the person. Secondly, I think that 
even with the things where a lot of Americans think that Germany is doing so well when it comes to healthcare or the education system or something like that, I want my students to question that. I want my students to not just adapt this idea of everything is better in Germany because it's not. And they need to see the downside of all these situations. So, for example, the fact that in Germany you barely get daycare, that kids only go to school for so few hours means that you have to have someone home. And I think it is actually a big disservice still for a lot of women to have a career for women is so much easier in the U.S. than in Germany. Just because Would you say that? I Absolutely. know I know I know in southern Germany like that's the case, but coming from Berlin, and I, I think that's still the remnants from the division because mm -hmm. of the former East and my mm -hmm. mom, like she always worked and just mm -hmm. working and being able to have your child in childcare, I mm -hmm. think was very normal. Whereas in South Germany, Southwest is you have those traditional families where once the woman had kids, they stayed at home. So also childcare wasn't as much available. But still, I mean, I feel like with Germany, with the parental leave, that there's more support in general than in the U.S., especially for women. And I mean, maybe in, in the U.S., women have it, but they pay huge price for, in putting their infants into daycares to be able to work where... A German would say like, after three months, I'm not going back to work or even two months or one month. See, and this is, this is exactly the discussion I would, I, I love in my classrooms because I would say to what you said right now is yes, in Germany, they have the women have the freedom to say, do I want to do that or not? But at the same time, if every woman in Germany would do that and would put their kids into daycare, there are just not enough daycares in Germany to fulfill that, right? So looking at people my age with children who are school-age children, I do not know a single woman thinking about it of my friends or in my family who are working full-time. They Most of them work part-time, and I think that changed a little bit from, you know, from our parents' generation. But most of yeah they are almost all of them work part-time but none of them are working full-time and a lot of them pretty much all of them either learned a trade or went to university and I agree with you I think it's terrible that in America a lot of people don't have the choice and a lot of women don't have the choice whether or not to work but at the same time in Germany there's still a problem when you work full-time and you put a, let's say, three-month-old child for eight hours into daycare, that the society is going to look at you that you are a terrible, terrible mother. And that is, a that is a clear difference to the U.S. And again, it's not this is better or worse. It has the advantages and disadvantages. So I, I, what I would like people to know about Germany is that there is no perfect or imperfect or better or worse. They are facts and the facts create a consequence. Mm. And what are the facts and what are the consequences and how do we deal with that? And how can we learn from each other and maybe develop an understanding of, and that's totally fine. Mm. It's just different. I know one of your passions is hockey. Yes. <laughs> mm. um, and I think for a lot of, I mean, in the US, that's kind of the, okay, Canada does a lot of hockey, but mm -hmm. I think when you talk about Germany, it's mostly soccer. Right. So what's the hockey culture in Germany and what team do you support? 
Well, I, of course, support the really well-known, amazing, <laughs> big global team, the Isalon Roosters. <laughs> and there's a good reason why their mascot is a rooster, because it's a very farmland kind of <laughs> area. Hockey is just is small in Germany. I think it's number three or four of the most well-liked. So the hockey players can barely live off of their income when they're playing in the first division. Pretty much in the second division, you already need a job on the side in order to make it. So that's the kind of, uh, you know, how big it is or not. What I love about hockey in Germany is because it is a little smaller. There's just so much more love and and fire and, and enthusiasm. Like if you ever get the chance to go to the Isalon Seilersee, which is the little lake where the hockey stadium is located, I tell you, you're going to go in there and you're going to experience culture like you haven't experienced it before with all the beer and the screaming and the yelling and people putting their hearts into this one game that it has, you know like probably third division hockey in the US is a similar ability, but it doesn't matter because it's like just being together and celebrating this amazing team of people that, you know, managed to at least score one goal. And uh, that's, you know, better than Christmas. If someone wanted to get in touch with you, how would they get in touch with you best? Best thing would be email sarah.a.lee at asu.edu make sure to send me an email important sarah.a.ly because the poor poor sarah the other sarah.ly says you gets a lot of my emails i think she's very happy once she's graduating so she doesn't have to forward it to me anymore so she's a student and yes she gets a lot of emails that she's forwarding so maybe i should actually send her a thank you letter at some point yeah so sarah.a.ly at asu edu and sarah without the h so sarah lee just like the baker just without the money how often have you been always every day constantly <laughs> i'm very tired of i'm not very, i'm not easily tired of my own jokes but that one i'm very very tired of This was my coffee connection with Sarah Lee. All content is created and edited by me, Hani Geist. If you would like to get in touch, send an email to podcast at dad.org. Stay safe, healthy, and well. Thanks for listening. I'll catch you at the next coffee break.